Today, session 10 in uh, the series on church history, a history of heresy. And uh, today we're looking at, there's a handout in the back if you didn't get one, we're looking at Christological heresies. Uh, Actually, three that we're going to talk about today that came about in the late 4th and early 5th century, so the late 300s and the early 400s. And we're going to see how the church, again, how the church responded, how God sovereignly used the uh, developments of these heretical understandings of key doctrines to drive the church into the scriptures and to look deeper at what the Bible already said and to clarify what they already believed. They weren't inventing new doctrines in these councils. They were clarifying what the faithful had always believed, yet by God's providence with more precision, more clarity. You know, when you dig into the Word, you understand things better than you did before, right? The Word transforms your thinking. And so as they dig into the Word, the church gets clearer and clearer on their understanding of what they already knew intuitively because the Spirit had worked that in them. But they became clear on it. So this is the beauty of how church history is a history of heresy. Uh, One of the things God is doing is allowing the heretic, though Satan means it for evil, God means it for good. And so let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we uh, go any farther. Father, thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity to gather together and to consider uh, your providential workings through history. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are building your church. Lord Jesus, you said that you would build it, and you have, and you are, and you will continue to until you return and make this world uh, and the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Thank you for um, the opportunity to talk about some complex issues. We acknowledge our weakness, our need of grace. Lord, our, um, our inability to understand infinite truth, and yet we thank you that you've given us by your Spirit, through your Word, the power to truly apprehend these things, not to comprehend them, comprehensively understand. We'd never have that, but we can truly know. And so help us, Lord. Use this time to that purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at three Christological heresies there on the... Uh, handout, the two key church councils we're going to look at are the third and fourth ecumenical councils. The third council is the Council of Ephesus. That's that first blank, the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. And then the fourth council was the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Uh, These are, as I said, the third and fourth councils. Remember, the first council was the Council of Nicaea, in 325. The second council was the Council of Constantinople in 381. We talked about those in previous uh, sessions. So today, uh, the, co- the key concept affirmed in the previous councils, though, so I'm asking the question that, that here we're talking about in those two previous councils, the key concept affirmed Jesus is of the same substance with the Father, or the word that they used, the Greek word homoousios, H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-O-S. It means same, homo, same, ousios, substance, same substance. So Jesus is the same substance of the Father. That was the, the outcome of the fourth century and, and the conflict with Arianism. Uh, interestingly, God's providence, I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my house yesterday, and uh, I was working outside. It was one of those times where probably because of how much I needed to get done, if he'd come to the door, I might not have answered it. But um, he, he called me outside. There was no way around it. And uh, so he and his wife and I talked for about 15 minutes, and he's going to come back later and bring me some material, and I can't wait to see it. Uh, no, but um, we had a pleasant conversation, but, you know, it's just... It's just so sad. That's Arian, I mean, it's Arianism. Jehovah's Witnesses have accepted the Arian error that Jesus is not homoousios with the Father. 
And it's, a, it's an exaltation of human reason, just like we saw with Arius. Well, the fourth century had gotten rid of Jehovah's Witness theology in the, evangel- in, in the Orthodox Church, even though it was called Arianism at that time. They've rejected it, and they said he's of the same substance with the Father. The deity of Christ has been clearly, firmly understood to be the teaching of the Scripture by the church. But what happens as a result of that is that uh, they tend to overemphasize that. It's the pendulum swings a little bit, and you see some Christological heresies that particularly struggle with understanding the full humanity of Jesus. Now that we've settled the full deity of Jesus, they start struggling with the full humanity of Jesus. And one of the things that happened, even at that council of... uh, Constantinople in 381, this is back before these two we're going to talk about today, the main point was reaffirmed, uh, they reaffirmed Nicene Orthodoxy, Jesus is homoousios with the Father. That was, they slammed the door on Arianism. But at that meeting, there was an, a man named Apollinaris, uh, Apollinaris of Laodicea, that's the next blank, who was on the right side of the issue of Arianism. He was a staunch anti-Arian. He was with Athanasius on the full deity of Christ. But he had begun to teach something that even at that council, they had to call out. So he's like on our side. Imagine he's on the side of the good guys. But as he's talking and has been teaching, we realize, hey, there's something in your theology we need to correct too. And they actually made a point of that. I didn't talk about it because it wasn't the main point at the... um, Council of Constantinople, the second council, they actually called out and said uh, what Apollinaris has been teaching, called Apollinarianism later, is wrong. And what he had been teaching, uh, he had denied the full humanity of Christ. He looked at the scriptures, particularly looked at where it says, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he accepted the fact that, yes, The Son of God, when he entered time and space, became man. He accepted that, except he put some interesting limitations on it. He he emphasized the flesh because that one text is really emphasizing flesh. Became flesh. Sarks, the skin, the, the, the body. Took on a human body. But Apollinaris believed that he did not have a human soul. That it was God's being just inhabiting a physical human body. It's his precise nuances. You know, he's not here to ask him. And of course you you have different nuances, but basically he, he kind of emphasized, you know, what the word became flesh, the logos, L-O-G-O-S was, is the Greek word translated by our English word, W-O-R-D word, um, Lagos had a broader meaning in the culture. And I think it's one of the reasons maybe even God used that to intend that is that the organizing principle of the universe, but it also had the idea of logic. And so the Lagos, he said, in, inhabited a physical body, but the, the mind, the thinking was, was all God. He didn't have a human mind. He didn't have human affections, human emotions, he had, God was inhabiting a physical body. And the Council of Constantinople rejected that. Even when it wasn't the main issue, it was a side issue. It's all about the deity of Christ. But while we're talking about it, this is wrong, they said, okay? Now, what's interesting is that continued, that kind of thing continued to uh, grow, though. As people were wrestling with this thing of emphasizing the deity of Christ. And so... What we're going to see is the key concepts to be affirmed in the coming councils, the next two councils that are going to happen first 50 and 70 years after Constantinople, 381, 431 Ephesus, 451 Chalcedon, is they're going to emphasize the fact that Jesus is of the same substance with us. He's homoousios with us too. He's of the same substance with God, and he's of the same substance with us. 
And the best reading, careful reading of the Bible makes this clear. Okay? One of the things that uh, I think is helpful to think about, this is something that they were arguing about. I mean, they, they realized the implications of it. And I think it's, I think the scripture clearly teaches it this as well. But to save us, he had to be God because salvation is of the Lord. He had to be fully God. He had to be of the same substance with God. But to save us, I mean, you think about to save, and you emphasize the word save, to save us, he had to be homoousios with God. To save us, he had to be homoousios with us. If he didn't have a full human soul, then he didn't save the human soul. So he took on our whole nature. Now, the scripture clearly teaches this, but this is part of the, just the, the thinking of that. You see, if he's not fully God, then God really hasn't come, and God alone can save. And if he's not fully us, then he hasn't, say, he hasn't taken humanity to heaven, full humanity to heaven. He took something less. Okay, now, so now the, point number one, more Christological confusion. So, what grows, this idea, it, it's kind of percolating different places. And the first one they want to talk about after Apollinarius, he died in 390. So uh, this, this is Eutyches, E-U-T-Y-E-U-T-Y-C-H-E-S, Eutyches of Constantinople. And so the heresies, when you read church history, it's important to remember this. Most of the heresy, well... Uh, You'll see heresies named things like uh, Eutychianism, Arianism, right? Uh, Montanism. And those are all named after the person who articulated the heresy. You see the, the name with an ism on the end. You know, so you wouldn't want to ever have an ism associated with your name. That's a bad thing, right? So, um, but then you have a, con a conceptual definition that, is also the same thing, but sometimes it's confusing. You think you got all these different, like monophysitism is the same thing as Eutychianism. You see what I'm saying? But if you're reading through church history and you're like, monophysitism, oh my goodness, what is that? I got another one to remember, right? Well, it's the same thing as Eutychianism and really as Apollinarianism. They're both the same thing. Monophysitism is a fancy way of saying only one uh, nature. Uh, Phusis is similar to usios, actually, and so it's one nature, only mono, only or one, and, um, you know, monocle, one lens, glasses. Nobody wears those, but they used to. Um, so, monophysitism. Eutyches, he stressed the deity of Christ, He'd gotten the anti-Aryan position right, but he diminished the humanity of Christ. Number two, the, he diminishes the humanity of Christ even far worse than Apollinaris did. He basically says that, I mean, the way he taught, the humanity of Jesus has just been lost in his deity. And apparently he used the illustration of a drop of honey. It's, imagine that this is the humanity of Christ is a drop of honey. And the deity of Christ is the ocean or its large body of water. If you drop a drop of honey into this large body of water, it ceases to really have any impact, right? It's just diluted to the point that all that matters is the large body of water. The deity of Christ is the water. The honey is the humanity. This is essentially Eutyches' position so that he, he, he again, these guys are, what so often happens is they're arguing philosophically rather than textually. They're wrestling with how can God, how can God be confined into a human soul? And in one sense, we know it, he can't, right? I mean, remember what Isaiah, God says through Isaiah in chapter 66, you know, how can I dwell in this temple? Uh, I, I fill the heavens, you know, but this is my footstool. Well, and this is where I will dwell. 
with him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. That's where he says, I will dwell with that person. So he's everywhere, yes, but Jesus is fully human and God somehow is has joined himself to full humanity. God the Son is fully God and has joined himself to full humanity in one person. Now the next named the next the, the, the third heresy we've said Apollinarianism, Eutychianism. Now we come to Nestorius, uh, NES. Well, right there, I, I didn't realize I put the thing right below it. Nestorianism, Nestorius, I U S is how that one ends of Constantinople. He is a contemporary of Eutyches, and he's not quite as off. I mean, he's still off. He's still off in a major way but he's not quite as far off as Eutyches was. Nestorianism stresses both the divine and human natures of Christ. It, he actually does accept that Jesus was, I mean, that God is, or that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And it's kind of weird what he does with it. He, he basically has, he, he denies that these two natures exist in one person. He almost makes it as if God the Son and Jesus are two different persons. It's kind of one of the uh, guys I, I, I had read was saying it's like um, uh, multiple personality disorder, you know, schizophrenic. Like God, the God the Son is schizophrenic. He's 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 God here. He's human here. He's God here. He's human here. This is an Astorius. He was wrestling with this idea and he was trying to make it fit. Again, over-reasoning. You know, like, how can God be confined to humanity? And, and he actually, he struggled with the same thing. How can God who is infinite be somehow now in, in a body? And, and he took issue with a, a phrase, theotokos, T-H-E-O, Theo, T-H-E-O-T-O-K-O-S. Now, this is a term that is a good term. It's going to be a term that the Roman Catholic Church is going to go crazy with later and make it, misunderstand it, okay? But at the time they were using this term, it was a good and sound term, what they were trying to say with this. And Nestorius rejects it. Theotokos comes from the word God, theos, and the word tikto, which means to give birth, and so, or to bear a child. This was a phrase they used to speak of Mary. Now, you see how you can get, if you have a Catholic background, you immediately, your antenna go up, uh-oh, we're talking about Mary. Well, this is actually sound, I and mean, we can talk about Mary to a certain level because the Bible talks about her, and what they were saying was, that, that Mary was the bearer of God, that she gave birth. Now, listen carefully what I'm saying here, because they they're not saying what it sounds like. The Catholics take it off to, you know, sometimes words, you say a sentence or you say a phrase, and you have in your mind what you mean, and people can understand what you mean, but there's semantic ranges of words, and they can misinterpret your words to mean something that you don't mean, Right? You don't mean that when you said this. No, I mean this part of the semantic range. That's why I use that word. It's the best word to describe this. But you take it over here. No, no, I don't mean that. Do you understand what I'm saying? So she did give birth to God. That is, in a sense, when Jesus entered time and space, when God the Son entered time and space, he did so at the moment of conception, and he came into the world through the womb of a woman. Okay? So that in the truest sense, God was in her womb. He didn't later become God. He didn't stop being God. God entered time and space in the womb of Mary. So in that sense, <clears throat> they were dealing with this issue. Full humanity. And, and just think about that. Just, just ponder for a moment. God wants to come and save man, and he can become man. He can take on flesh and offer himself on the cross. He could have done that. I mean, 
if we didn't know the story already, he could have done that as a grown man. He could have made Jesus like he made Adam. I mean, he is the last Adam, right? Could have made him a grown man, shows up on the scene. He's true man. But he didn't do that. He made him even more true man than we would have expected. He made it so that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, experienced humanity, how you and I experience humanity, from the moment of conception as a fetus in the womb. Think about that. Now, see, you understand that, and you understand God was entering into our full humanity. No shortcuts. He experienced the normal gestation period like every single child does. I mean, unless there's a, an issue, right, from conception to birth. He came into the world as in his humanity. He had to depend upon his mother and his father for everything, just like every newborn infant does. Every little child has to be cared for. They can't take care of themselves. He had to learn to walk. Think about that. He had to learn to talk. They had to correct him. No, no, it's mama, uh, whatever it was in Hebrew. I should know that, but I don't. Anyway, um, <clears throat> he had to be corrected. Now, he never sinned. No. But it's not a sin to misspeak. And Yes. No, of course not. That's a good question. That's why the virgin birth. I mean, Adam, apparently that we have to infer this out from the scriptures. It doesn't say explicitly anywhere that it comes through the father. But you look at the virgin birth, the concept of and the seed of the woman that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. The first preaching of the gospel is that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be in conflict. And God says to the serpent... Uh, your seed will bruise his heel, and he, the seed of the woman, will bruise uh, its head. And so the victory of the cross, that's even prophesied right there. And so the fact that, we ha that Jesus had to be born of a woman and not an earthly father is taken away original sin. Adam was the federal head, and apparently it passes down through the man. Uh, but that's a great question. So... But she is bearing God in the womb. God is in the womb. That's why John the Baptist reacts the way he does when he's in the womb and Jesus in the womb comes into his presence. Remember, Mary, when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, is he my home? Elizabeth, are you here? The baby jumps in the womb. She's filled with the spirit and begins to prophesy. John the Baptist is doing what God called him to do. That's the one. That's what he's saying. Even in the womb, that he's, he's uh, I think, six months ahead uh, in, in gestation period. And, but he's recognizing that's the one. Okay, so the, the church is re realizing, look, you cannot diminish his humanity. God chose to enter time and space in the womb through a virgin birth. Full humanity. Now, we'll come and look at some passages in a minute, too. Two, two key defenders. Oh, so the teaching condemned at the Council of Ephesus. Uh, the teaching of Nestorius was condemned at the Council of Ephesus. They, he had said Theotokos is wrong. It should be Christotokos, that she was the bearer of Christ, just the physical nature of Jesus, not God himself. God himself couldn't be contained in a womb. And we know God can't be contained in a womb. It's a mystery. But God, he was God in the womb. Okay, so... Number two, two to key defenders of orthodoxy, Cyril or of Alexander, C-Y-R-I-L, and Celestine of Rome. These were two guys at the councils. Cyril was there at both, and he especially at the council of uh, Ephesus was hammering home uh, the danger of Nestorianism. And so the Council of Ephesus basically sides, takes, 
the side, the right side of the issue, though, it was a little bit messy. It was kind of wasn't really cleared up completely. And that's why they have to, 20 years later, they come back to it. And by the way, these ecumenical church councils, these first four were all called by the Roman emperor, which is an interesting thing in the providence of God that the Roman emperors were getting involved calling these councils. They would have synods or meetings and talk about these issues, but the councils were actually called by the Roman emperor. God was working through that, even that means to get the church gathered together. Interesting just to ponder that. Now, the biblical witness. So Theotokos, I just kind of already mentioned Luke 1. You know, you're going to, you're, Mary says, how am I going to have a baby? The Holy Spirit's going to come overshadow you so that the child that will be born to you will be called the Son of God. So God is going to place in your womb his seed, his son, and it's going to, uh, you're going to be the mother of this God-man who he sees fully God and fully man. Um, Matthew chapter 1, Joseph has that, that vision. The angel appears to him and says, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And this way he shall be called the Son of God. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, God the Son became flesh in the womb and entered the world through the birth canal. I mean, that's just really staggering. Just meditate on that and wonder at that. John Calvin talks about this when he says, you know, He's actually talking about how everything that we need as a Christian is in Christ. Everything you need in every moment is in union with Christ. And he speaks about, like, if you need, uh, you know, if you need purity, think of his conception, the purity of that conception. If you need, he goes on to say, if you need meekness, think about uh, his, his birth, and the lowliness of his birth, that he would be born. And then that think about where he was born in a stable. Think about the, the magnitude of that, the son of God, the eternal son of God, the greatest man to ever be born is laid in a manger, a feeding trough. Meekness is accepting whatever station God gives you and trusting him. And you see Jesus willing to accept the station the father has called him to. And the manger really pictures the cross, doesn't it? You're born in a stable and laid in a manger because I'm sending you to this cross. And so we look at Christ, we see that, we meditate on that then we can accept whatever God gives to us, whatever low position we feel like we're placed in, whatever challenge we are placed under. Look at Christ and receive from him meekness. Okay, the biblical balance in how we see Mary. Okay, Theotokos, the bearer of God. Uh, Yes, but it doesn't mean anything special about her. I love this, that God takes care of this in the scriptures. In Luke eleven twenty seven and 28, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, he's, he's, he's speaking, he's been uh, teaching, just cast out a demon, teach, has been teaching about, power of God versus the power of darkness. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Just that, and it's a, I think it's a godly sentiment. She's like, man, look at this man. that it is showing us who God is. Whether she fully understands his deity at this point, probably she doesn't, but she's hearing his teaching, amazed at the power of his words, and she says, blessed is the womb that bore you and 
the breast at which you nursed. Look what Jesus says. On the contrary, it's not about the womb that bore me and the breast that nursed me. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Don't be getting all hung up on the particular woman that I came into the world through. Now, she will be blessed because not because she bore me. The reason she will be blessed and saved is because she must also hear the word of God and observe it. In fact, Mary did a really good job of that from the beginning, right? When, let it be to me as you say, said to the angel. And she kept pondering these things in her heart, but she needed to be saved just the way you and I did. She was a sinner. Okay, so that shows you Theotokos, if you had that balance, it, yeah, she bore God, but she, I mean, just a sinner just like us. Need to be saved the same way you and I need to be saved. Okay, um, now, I mentioned he experienced childhood, and, and Luke doesn't go into things like uh, look at him, learn to walk, but it's interesting what he does do. I mean, he, he just doesn't take time to do that. He tells us about him being born, and he tells us about them having to flee. Jesus is not directing his dad from the womb, hey, we need to go to Egypt. Think about that. I mean, he's God, but he's also a baby. He's not speaking. He's full humanity. He's not telling them what to do. It's not like they have, you know, they're driving in their car, and they can say, hey, to the baby back in the back, what should we do now? No, they're having to care for that child, and Joseph makes the decision to go to Egypt. Now, he's warned in a dream. God sends an angel to him, right? But later on in chapter 2, verses 39 to 52, you have the story. Well, at, at, at verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Increasing in wisdom. He had a human mind. If it's only a divine mind, there is no increasing in wisdom in the divine mind. God is not getting smarter every day. He's already as smart as is possible to be. Infinite knowledge, infinite perfect knowledge of everything. But in his humanity, he needed to grow in wisdom. And he was doing it. He was applying his heart to the word of God. He was learning and memorizing scripture. He didn't borrow from his deity a perfect knowledge, like download a perfect knowledge of the Bible. There it is. No, he grew in wisdom. He received instruction. And he goes on to say, like after the story of him being at the temple, we'll jump on down. Uh, verse 49, they come and they find him. He said to them, why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I mean, why would you be worried? Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? He's, he's aware in his humanity of who he is and why he's here. And I had to be in my father's house. I've got to clean this place up. This is why I've come. He's only 12 years old at this time, but he's already feeling the burden to be about the work. What's amazing, they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. They can't fully comprehend all this. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. That's submission. Same word, hupatasso, we're looking at in 1 Peter over and over and over again. Hupatasso. He continued to line himself up under their authority. Fully man. His mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He keeps growing in his humanity. Never sinning, no, never sinning. It's not like yours and my growth where we sin less. That's what happens when we grow, right? We, we stop sinning. No, he never sinned at all, but he's still nevertheless growing in his understanding of truth and his, his wisdom and his understanding of, of, of all that man is to be before God. Somehow he's continuing to grow. And Peter, I mean, uh, Peter, not Peter, uh, the author of Hebrews is going to say, he actually learned obedience through the things he suffered. He's learning. 
That's full humanity. You see how you understand that? You look at just what the text says. You don't try to reason everything out and you say, even though I can't make sense of how God and man exist in one person, I can't deny the full humanity of Jesus. The Bible just makes it clear. In fact, uh, the other passage we need to look at is Hebrews 2. And we're going to look at Hebrews 5 I was just mentioning as well. That I didn't write it down here for you, but Hebrews 2. Fourteen. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That's interesting. He doesn't get help to angels. Fallen angels are talking about. Jesus didn't come to save fallen angels. If he had, he would have taken on the nature of an angel. That's what he's saying here. He didn't, he's not, he doesn't give help to angels. He came to save sinful humans. He came to save mankind. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. There you go. He'd be made like his brethren in all things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He takes on every aspect of our humanity, the same substance, made like us in all things, Homo usios with us. Then turn to chapter 5 of Hebrews. Verse 7. He's talked about the earthly high priest and how the high priest can deal with weakness because he's a man like we are. He's talking about the Jewish high priest. And he's arguing from that to now looking at Christ. The, the high priest... Who, whose role it was to bring sinners to God in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, Aaron and all his descendants that were the high priest, that would go behind the veil once a year to make that offering, the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. So their role was to bring sinners to God and to bring the blood into the presence of God for sinners to be made right with God. And he says in earlier in the chapter, the reason they were able to do it is they could identify with us. They were sinners too. They had, they had passion and compassion. They knew we need to be saved because they knew they needed to be saved. They had that connection. He's going to say, though, Jesus doesn't need to be saved, but he has that connection with us. That he's the same way he's able to deal with us tenderly because he's experienced everything we experience except for sin. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. He prayed. One of the things that, that Jehovah's Witness guy was struggling with is that he calls, Jesus calls God his God. He does. In his humanity, God the Father is his God. In his deity, God the Father is his Father. And these two realities are there side by side at the same time. So he prays and so he offers supplications. So he prays and he supplicates, he entreats, he urges God. That's what he's saying. Look at with loud crying and tears. In the days of his flesh, Jesus prayed with such earnestness to the Father with loud crying and tears. That is full humanity. I think he's speaking particularly about Gethsemane, but I don't think it's just limited to that. 
Because he says in the days of his flesh, he offered. The idea is not, not just once. I think, he's, I think that's the main thing. That was the main moment where he offered up prayers with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him, because he's talking about that issue, to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, even though the father didn't give him what he asked. Remember what he asked? Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. All things are possible to you, Father, as he says that. Let this cup pass from me. The cup was the cup of God's wrath that he was supposed to, to drink. That's the, or the cup. Old Testament image for the wrath of God. God has his wrath stored up in a cup, and you have to drink that cup. You drink his punishment. Jesus has come and he's appointed to drink the cup of God's wrath for all who would ever believe. And as he stands before the cross, the next day the cross is coming. He pleads with the Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. All things are possible to you, Father. Let this cup pass for me. He's not so much thinking, I think about the cross, the physical suffering. He's thinking about the wrath of God as being being the sin bearer and having the father's displeasure and the lack of fellowship and, and, and oneness, whatever that means. It, we know that the deity that Godhead cannot really ultimately be broken up, but he's acting in his humanity. He's going to experience all of that and somehow in his deity too, in a way we can't fully understand. In the agony of the cross, he knows it's going to be more than he can imagine or bear in his humanity. It's unthinkable. And he cries out with tears. And it says he's heard. God doesn't say, yes, I give you what you want. But God hears him and God gives him grace to endure. So often that's the way the Lord answers our prayers, isn't it? We ask for something and God, we think God doesn't answer if he doesn't give us what we want. But that's not true. If you pray fervently, you pour out your heart to God, you ask him to, to heal this or to do this for you, and he doesn't do it, he will give you the grace that you need to endure. And he gives Jesus the grace. And it's just saying, you see, and, and he, he says, verse, this is where he says, although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Although he's the eternal son of God, he still learned obedience. Every time he suffered, there was more, in a sense, of even deeper and fuller surrender, even though he was never not surrendered. I don't fully understand this. We're talking, we have to walk softly here, but he's learning obedience. His obedience is growing and deepening. Now, think about that. You see it really exemplified in Abraham's life in a way, too. Um, Abraham obeys God from the beginning. He's not perfect, so he's, he, he's not like Jesus. But there's still something. He's, he's a hero of faith. And think about it. God says, leave her and go to the land I'll show you. And he does it. That's pretty impressive right there. You know, God appears to him, tells him go, and he goes. And doesn't give him a road map. Hey, this is the land. Here's a brochure. Look at, the, look at this. No, just go where I'm going to show you. He goes. And God continues to give him instructions throughout his life. And then he, you know, he, he's justified in Genesis 15 when he believes the promise of God. He believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. Um, he receives the promise that Isaac will be born. He trusts God. He believes God. Romans talks about that, how he believed God, even though his body was as good as dead. He took God at his word and believed the Lord. The idea is he he loved his wife in the way that you have to love your wife to have a child. He believed God for that. You see that? And in his faith, he received the promise. Isaac's born. So see, he's growing in faith. And then God takes him to another level when he says, now the son, he wakes up that morning and God says, your son, your only son whom you love, take him, Isaac, Take him to a mountain, I will show you. You go to the place I'm going to show you. Resonating to, you go to the place I will show you. And you're going to offer him as a sacrifice to me. It says Abraham got up early in the morning. 
He didn't sleep in. He didn't wish it would go away. He got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, took two servants with him. He got Isaac, and they took off. And then he went, and he offered his son up. And that, what that was, in Abraham's heart, this is, what, this is what James is getting at when he refers to this and says that uh, he was justified by his works of doing that. The way it fits together is he wasn't really justified by his works. James agrees with Paul, you're justified by faith, but faith works. That's his whole point. You can say you have faith, but faith must demonstrate itself. And so what happens in the life of true believers is though it's not perfect with true believers, and it wasn't perfect with Abraham, he stumbled. He stumbled in chapter 21 before he gets it right in 22. But you see that God takes you through different, di- different circumstances, and as you trust him, your obedience grows. Your trust grows. Abraham's obedience that came from faith grows and deepens. His faith was deepening, and his obedience was deepening. And that's what he's saying about Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, that though he never sinned, by God taking him through deeper and deeper valleys, he, in his humanity, kept trusting, kept obeying, kept submitting, and kept believing the Father, and he is deepening and being perfected in his obedience. That's the idea. In his humanity, more and more devoted to God, even though he was not ever not devoted to God. But we can relate to him. He can relate to us. So when you and I are struggling, we have a high priest that is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. So the scriptures, when you look at it all together, we see that he, he felt what we feel. He experienced what we experience. Therefore, he has a fully human soul. Jesus had a human mind human will, human emotions, and a human body. And, and you could say a human spirit in the sense that I, I believe that the Bible rightly understood really pictures two parts of man. Some folks see three, spirit, soul, and body. And there are verses that talk about that. But when you look at all of it together, you let the whole of the Bible speak, you really have the inner man and you have the outer man. And the inner man is made up of this various elements, the mind, the will, the emotions, and, and the spirit, somehow all interacting in, in a way that this, there's, there's unity there. It's not like separate compartments. The, 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 it, it's kind of like what we're talking about with this. Jesus is fully God, fully man in one person. How it all works, we don't know. But, yeah, Art? I have uh, heard one time about, speaking about uh, Jesus' humanity and the problem, right now, my God, my God, why? Um, you know, speaking about the Trinity, they cannot be separated. Uh-huh. Uh, but that was a cry that came from his humanity. And it had to do more with the fact of six hours had gone by of this pain. How much longer is it going to take? Um, kind of like that was what she was referring to when she said, why have you forsaken me? You know, from his humanity, this is so painful. I cannot bear this. I don't know what to think about. Yeah, well, if he he actually makes that cry around noon, so he's been on the cross for three hours when he makes that cry, and then there's another three hours of suffering. I think he I think it's there. I think the main reason he does it uh, in the providence of God is so that we know that he's now bearing sin, and we're told the sky gets dark at noon. Why did God do that? I I think that's clear. You know, it's the supernatural nature of that. You know, what is happening? That the sky is dark and it's 12 noon. Uh, I think it is saying that somehow as he's the sin bearer, because the Bible says even in first, second Corinthians 521, he became sin. Now, again, you're using words in semantic range. You got to be careful not to overstate it, but he is bearing sin. And you think of all the old Testament imagery, like the, the, uh, the, the scapegoat that has the sins uh, confessed over it on the Day of Atonement, the high priest. They had two goats that would be taken that were spotless without blemish. One's a sin offering, one's a scapegoat. 
And he actually would put his hands on the scapegoat and confess the sins. Interesting, he doesn't do that to the one that goes to, to die. I don't know why, but he does it to this one. I think just emphasizing they're both getting it. But this, and what happens to the scapegoat? The scapegoat is sent out of the camp and chased out. And the idea is, well, the center of the camp is the tabernacle. People camp around the tabernacle, the presence of God. And so what's happened is that sin separates you from God. You're cast out into darkness, away from the light. And I think that's what's happening with that on the cross, the, the darkness of 12 noon and Jesus crying out. And I think you're right in the sense that in his humanity, the, he's also crying out of genuine anguish. I mean, he's in physical agony. He is in the, the profoundest spiritual agony in his own heart that is beyond our ability to conceive of. What he's going through is the very worst a man could ever go through. I mean, his whole life was a life of suffering in the sense that that's why Jesus is a friend to anyone who goes through unspeakable agony Christ can understand. Rejected, betrayed, he was the most rejected, the most betrayed. But in his agony, and it is this, it's, it's this we're, we're talking about something that we have to be careful about. It's like Moses said, you know, God said to Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground, right? So we want to be careful that scriptures inform us here. Um, but something, it, it, the fact that he's God and man in one person, that he's not bifurcated so that he's sometimes God and he's sometimes man. I mean, he, I th there are moments where we may see him. I, you know, there's a mystery, even like, you know, who touched me, right? Does he know who touched him or does he not? I, I think in the moment he, somehow he doesn't, he, in his deity, he does. He knows all things. He's one person. How does, I don't know how that works. But apparently, I think the, the best understanding of how I understand the work of Christ is that when he took on full humanity, he lived in complete dependence upon the Father. He did all the miracles that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why you see things like when he fasted and prayed for 40 days, then Luke says, then he went in the power of the Spirit after that. He doesn't need the power of the Spirit in his deity, right? I mean, the Spirit's just the same as him. They're the same, the homoousios. But in his humanity, he's living. This is what it means that he laid aside. Uh, not He didn't lay aside his divine nature. No. And I'm talking about Philippians 2, 5, that um, who being in the form of God did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself he didn't empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of the prerogatives of deity. That is, he did not use his deity. It would have corrupted the humanity that he was offering to God. I mean, it would have, it, it would have taken away from his full human experience that he had to accomplish for us. And so he did all the miracles by the power of the Spirit. And so I think in reality, somehow his deity, he's somehow restraining that. Even Who touched me? I think he's genuinely asking. I mean, this is, again, I don't know 100% for sure, Tim, but this is what, how I read it. Yeah. For me, it, it helps um, identifying Christ's humanity and the issues that you mentioned helps us understand more clearly the distinction of the three persons, the one God, the Trinity, is three persons, Father, Son, That's really helpful. Thank you, brother. It is, uh, there's so much to ponder and just look at and say, wow. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So Mike's saying, if you didn't hear him in the back, he's saying that when Peter said, I'm not going to, I'll never deny you. And he says, no, you're going to die me three times. He he does know all things. And the Bible says in, in John 1, he knew what was in the, or John 2, he knew it was in the heart of man. He wasn't disclosing himself to me because it was in the heart of man. Yes, so there's some interplay and we don't understand fully, but we know that that his the key thing we're getting today is his humanity is complete. The Bible makes it clear uh, throughout the you know throughout the New Testament uh, that we have a Savior who is a fully human Savior as well as a fully divine Savior, and in one person, not going back and forth. Yes. Did you guys hear what Victoria said back in the back? Were you able to hear? Okay. Take that as a yes. That, the, uh, yeah, that we can, that he can identify with us so well that he knows fully what it's like to wrestle under the weight of temptation. And even greater in the sense that it's harder, if you think about it, to keep fighting. You know, when you have a besetting sin, at some point, sometimes you just give in because you're weary of the fight. That's foolish. You're supposed to keep on fighting because you resist the devil and he will eventually flee from you. Resist and resist and resist and resist and he will flee from you. That's that, the wording of that in the Greek. But he understands what it's like to be under the weight like we do. And so we come to a savior that has tenderness and patience toward us because he knows and yet he's fully God. Jed, were you going to say something? Say, say that a little louder. I'm sorry. The scapegoat is given the, the scapegoat, scapegoat okay. and it is threat it is forced out of the society. For those who have dealt with animals, a lot of times when humans interact with animals, they don't interact well when they're sent out into the wild. They're sending it to die. They're sending it out to suffer and to die. And I was struck by that when I'm realizing this, that these, that is sin. And so sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Humans have suffered death because of sin. And that is a consequence, and God could not fully be human without death. It wasn't necessarily the fact that he suffered on the cross, that he was beaten, that he was shamed. But he truly died because he took on sin. Huh. Very good. I mean, it's interesting. Your point about domesticated animals, that's, that's a death sentence, right? Uh, that's a really helpful point. And then... I think a very nice place to end where he entered the world through the birth canal and that he went to glory through the grave. That's your savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise and honor you for the glory of who you are, your holiness, your infinite love that you would give your son, your only son, whom you love. 
and you didn't spare him. Lord Jesus, we worship you because you are the author and finisher of our salvation. You've done everything necessary from beginning to end. Your human life began at a moment. It ended, and it continues now after your resurrection forever. And we praise and honor you. We pray that you would help us understand what we need to understand about these things. We recognize our limitations, our finiteness. So we do want to walk humbly and carefully around these truths. And Lord, where we don't understand, let us just worship and be filled with wonder. You are so wonderful. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.